You mentioned oxycodone there. Um, it again raises that interesting question of, of subacute pain in the ICU for the, the patients who are immobile for long periods of time or have ongoing pain issues. Oxycodone seems to be one uh, agent that's used. Methadone and buprenorphine are, are others. Um, why is oxycodone the, the agent that you've chosen? Um, look, oxycodone I'm referring to here is in its IV form. Um, I'm not sure how many Australian hospitals have it, but it is available on the market and it is more expensive. Um, so in my, my referring to oxycodone um, in, in the last instance was where you're needing an alternative to intravenous morphine. Oxycodone is also an easier drug um, to use um, when converting from intravenous to oral because the um, oral bioavailability of oxycodone is about 50%. So you can simply double the dose to get to um, a fairly predictable uh, oral um, equivalence. Um, oxycodone has become fairly ubiquitous in, in acute pain management in hospitals in Australia and I think it's um, partly because of the use of Oxycontin and being able to roll up the dose and use Oxycontin and, and regards that I think Oxycontin has con contributed to revolutionising acute post-operative pain management um, by reducing the use of PCAs. Um, and encouraging early transition to oral analgesia. And I think that's been a great advance and has led to greater pain control. Um, the flip side is that uh, particularly OxyContin more than, than OxyCodone has led to a, a major uh, problem with drug abuse in the community. But for in-hospital management, I think OxyContin is a useful drug. And in general terms, OxyCodone is a good opiate. Um, it has a faster time to maximum effect in the CNS than, than morphine, but it has a similar duration of action of around three hours. Um, the main problem with morphine is around 80 or 90% of it ends up as active glucuronide metabolites. In the case of oxycodone, most of it ends up, or 90% of it ends up as noroxycodone, which is like norfentanyl, an inactive metabolite. Uh, around 10% ends up as oxymorphone, which can be either further metabolised in the liver or excreted in the kidney. So there is really only, with oxycodone, there's only a very small opportunity for accumulation in renal failure. Do those other agents have a place, methadone and buprenorphine? Um, probably... Uh, I'd like to deal with those drugs um, separately. Methadone has revolutionised chronic pain management by virtue of it having some NMDA or ketamine-like uh, effects along with morphine, and that's really um, why it's enjoying such a renaissance. Um, methadone is not an easy drug to titrate in the short term. There's a huge amount of um, uh, pharmacogenetic uh, polymorphism or, or variabilities in, in um, its metabolism due to cytochrome 3A4, its half-life can be anything between 5 and 150 hours. So it's very hard to predict. It has a potential in high doses to cause a, a long QT syndrome, which has led to the suggestion that a ceiling dose of methadone should be 100 milligrams a day. Um, it, it interacts with a lot of other drugs that are frequently used in, in around ICUs. Um, inducers of cytochrome 3A4 include 
um, commonly used anti-consultants, um, rifampicin or anti-turcoloid antibiotics and antiretrovirals, as well as there being inhibitors of 3A4, which are really the danger in terms of cardiac t toxicity, um, including the commonly used antidepressants of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, tricyclic antidepressants and duloxetine. Um, some of the antibiotics, such as ciprofloxacin and the macrolides, as well as some of the antiretroviral drugs have the potential to inhibit 3A4. So um, that makes methadone a very difficult drug, drug to titrate in the, um, in the acute setting and uh, has an onus of follow-up, really, because of uh, such a potentially long um, half-life and the, the potential for accumulation. The upside is it has no active metabolite in renal failure, but I would rate methadone as probably one of the most difficult opioids to prescribe and use effectively. Interestingly, intravenous uh, methadone has been used as a morphine alternative um, in anaesthetic settings, and they have had some good experiences with it. But regards oral, managed, oral dosing of methadone for um, subacute or chronic pain, I think it's best left in the realm of the specialist. It's a very difficult drug. Buprenorphine is an interesting drug, and there's been a lot of interest in buprenorphine in recent times because of its available as a transdermal patch. Um, the, the transdermal patch was really developed as a codeine alternative for the elderly arthritic population, um, but has found its way into many other um, patient populations. Um, we, we think buprenorphine is generally a good drug. The, the old story of it being a partial agonist and therefore having a sealing effect and potentially blocking the effect of other opioids, those effects are not seen um, in the low sort of doses used for transdermals in the 5 to 20 milligrams per week uh, setting. The sealing effect of buprenorphine is used um, in opioid abstinence programs um, in doses of sort of 16 to 24 milligrams a day um, and the ceiling effect there is useful. That patient population presents us with a particular difficulty in develop, uh, delivering effective analgesia because um, buprenorphine has a very uh, high affinity for the mu opioid receptor and can occupy it for up to 72 hours at the exclusion of other opioids. So. Buprenorphine as used in abstinence programs um, is difficult and is a problem, at least it, uh, to my mind, but buprenorphine patches used for chronic pain management um, are effective for reducing gastrointestinal side effects in the elderly, improving their pain management and uh, compliance, and should not necessarily interfere with acute pain management. So most of those patients who have already got them on we leave them on through the perioperative um, period and manage their pain as if they're an opioid-tolerant patient. We tend not to um, use patches of any type uh, for acute pain management because the time to uh, maximum effect or stability, if you like, um, on commencing a transdermal patch is around 12 to 24 hours, which really doesn't allow for titrateability of analgesia in the acute pain setting. So. Um, perhaps I'll go out on a limb and say there's two routes that we do not use um, in acute pain management to deliver opioids. Uh, one is uh, rectal and, and the other is transdermal. So just to, to um, summarise that, for buprenorphine at least, 
if somebody comes in on a buprenorphine patch, you would leave it on and manage them as if they were a opioid-tolerant patient. Is that right? That's correct, yep. And its place is largely in chronic pain management rather than in acute pain management. Yeah, as for all patches, I yeah. think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, some some institutions have had success using sublingual buprenorphine um, as an acute uh, or breakthrough oral opioid alternative, if you like, um, particularly in patients who are already on buprenorphine patches. Um, that approach may have some promise, but I have no experience with it. You talked uh, quite a bit before about uh, regional anaesthesia, particularly um, epidurals. Are there other options? As, are we using those sorts of techniques enough in ICU, do you think? Well, I, I think what's happening in, in regional anaesthesia, this is my, my key area of interest, um, is, is fascinating. And, and what's happened over the last 20 years um, has changed how regional anaesthesia will be used in the future. Um, I think a landmark paper to refer to um, is the MASTER trial, which was published about 10 years ago. Um, these were patients having major abdominal surgery um, randomised to have an epidural or um, morphine-based PCA analgesia, um, and they were looking at mortality uh, and major complication outcomes. The MASTER trial delivered a blow to epidural analgesia because it showed the only patients who benefited in terms of, uh, well, actually, there was no mortality benefit, but the only patients who benefited were those with pre-existing respiratory disease were less likely to develop a respiratory complication. They didn't really comment much about analgesia, but it is uh, noted in the trial that the patients who had epidurals had better um, pain scores uh, at all stages of the trial. But um, I think around the same time that this data started to challenge what we knew or what we thought we knew about the value of sympathectomies, particularly in patients um, with cardiac risk having non-cardiac surgery, um, the, the, the view through the 70s and 80s was challenged at the end by the master trial. At the same time, there was increasing recognition of the risk of um, epidural hematoma and abscess formation. This was compounded by the use of low molecular weight heparins um, and the ageing population with increasing comorbidities being at risk for the epidural abscess. So the risks for epidural abscess and or hematoma formation, which were you know, long, long ago were quoted as you know, 1 in 50,000 or remote, uh, some studies now are showing the risk as high as one in 2,000. We have certainly seen a couple of epidural abscesses in Geelong Hospital in the last couple of years related to epidural instrumentation. So this recognition of increased risk and perhaps acceptance of uh, less mortality benefit has led to us using regional anaesthesia or using our dose of local anaesthetic in other ways. So moving to the periphery, and away from the new axis. So now we're looking at, um, there's, and there's a number of examples. You know, the, in our hospital, paravertebrals have superseded um, epidurals for use in thoracotomy, and it's very rare for any of our thoracotomy patients to be managed with an epidural. Um, most of our patients having knee arthroplasties and no longer having epidurals and having femoral nerve catheters. Um, and in fact, at Geelong, which I think is perhaps um, 
the TAP centre of Australia, most of our patients having abdominal surgery are now having TAP catheters inserted, um, not only as an alternative to epidurals, but as a, as a broader approach to the multimodal sort of analgesic regime. And the reason they've been so well received, received by surgeons, nursing staff and physiotherapy, as well as the ICU, um, is the reduction in um, hypotension, making patients ward ready, uh, reduction is in motor block, um, improving patient mobility, and um, the ease of, of consenting patients um, in this day and age to avoid that discussion about neuroaxial risk. So I think regional or peripheral nerve blocks rather than epidurals have become more acceptable to a discerning patient population. As well as that, there's been less conflict with things like clopidogrel and the newer antiplatelet agents, as well as the low molecular weight heparins. I think um, the other thing to say about regional anaesthesia is there's a lot more emerging data now about longer-term outcomes from uh, surgery regards um, cancer recurrence and um, risk of chronic or persistent post-surgical pain. Um, that is uh, coming down in favour of the use of regional anaesthesia. This all combined with the use of ultrasound to place needles effectively and reliably um, has led to regional anaesthesia making a big comeback um, despite the turn away from epidurals. You mentioned tap blocks before. That's probably the one that most or that, that some people may have little experience with. Can you just describe that technique for me? Tap blocks are um, deposition of local anaesthetic and to distend the facial plane um, between the internal oblique and the transversus abdominus muscle in the abdomen, which is the neurovascular plane. So the, the epidural space is continuous with the paravertebral space, is continuous with the transversus abdominus plane right the way through from the spine around to the rectus sheath. Um, we are able to easily identify the plane between transversus abdominis and internal oblique by the use of ultrasound and can, uh, in real time, watch a needle go into that plane and distend it with a local anaesthetic. There have been uh, eight published prospective randomised control trials. I think six of them have come down with fairly remarkable results in terms of um, improvements in pain scores and reductions in morphine use. All of those trials referred to the use of single-shot tap blocks, that is, just a single injection into the tap plane perioperatively, um, and I think has become an accepted uh, form of analgesia and, and certainly an individual alternative for patients having uh, abdominal surgery. We have taken that uh, one step further, um, that is uh, Geelong Hospital, the Western Hospital, Wangaratta, and numerous others around Victoria and have begun to insert epidural catheters into the transversus abdominis plane with the aim of extending the analgesia we can get from tap blocks. The initial single block, uh, single shot study showed an analgesic benefit um, at 24 hours from single shot tap blocks, but we're hoping that um, by using tap catheters we can extend that analgesia out to a week or so. Um, we're in the process of conducting the first randomised control trial of uh, cat catheters, uh, as far as we know, in the world at the moment. So we're, we're looking forward to those results with great anticipation. 
Perhaps to round out the interview, Miles, I was wondering if I could raise a couple of clinical scenarios with you. The first would be a patient who has uh, pain associated with um, Guillain-Barre syndrome. How would you manage that, that type of patient? Um, they're a very challenging patient. Um, often the, the patient is uh, intubated um, when the, the pain is recognised to be an issue. Um, I, I, it seems to me, or, or my observation, is that um, pain is not usually a big part of their initial presentation, um, but uh, often these patients deteriorate and end up intubated in ICU and pain management becomes a stumbling block in their recovery. So communication is clearly an issue and recognising uh, the types of pain that are occurring and uh, accepting that they will need different therapies is, is really key. Um, neuropathic pain is a big part of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, as is myofascial pain. So patients who have uh, disuse of muscles and end up in, you know, uh, postures which they're unable to get out of for prolonged periods frequently end up with myofascial pain. Myofascial pain is not well treated with opioids, um, but better dealt with by things such as physiotherapy, uh, ischemic pressure and trigger point injections. The real bit that interests me about Guillain-Barre syndrome is the management of the neuropathic pain. Um, we've had remarkably good experience by using subcutaneous lignocaine infusions, which is another sort of uh, new use for an old drug. Um, and uh, using systemic lignocaine, um, the toxicity is acceptably low, um, providing you stick to uh, the recognised doses. And it is extremely effective for acute neuropathic pain. And we've had some great successes with that. Even patients who've left the hospital and gone to rehab um, still dependent on subcutaneous lignocaine infusion. So it would be my first port of call for treating neuropathic pain in a Guillain-Barre patient. Gabapentin definitely also has a role. The difficulty with managing gabapentin in the acute situation is being able to titrate it to effect without causing undue sedation or um, ataxia. So I think um, initially we, we start them on lignocaine and start to titrate in gabapentin with the hope of being able to wean them off the lignocaine and onto gabapentin. And that's really the basis of our management for Guillain-Barre neuropathic pain. But I think it's important to communicate with the patient and elicit the symptoms that would make you suspect either myofascial pain or neuropathic pain before you start to make sure that you're tailoring the pain management to your patient. The other clinical scenario was that of a patient, for example, comes in for a laparotomy um, and dealing with their acute pain post-operatively but are on complex pain medications prior to admission, say for low back pain or something like that. How would you manage those patients? Um, they're uh, part of the, the explanation for the existence of acute pain service, I guess. So we're talking about the management of a patient who's opioid tolerant, um, who's no longer got the, the usual route uh, of administration available to them. So we, we have uh, a, no, a number of problems that's, that's worth sort of compartmentalising. 
with a patient who has established chronic pain and now has a an acute pain, um, and often these patients deal with the acute pain with a different coping mechanism. That chronic pain often, or the type of patient that has chronic pain often has quite poor coping mechanisms that uh, have led to them getting into um, a disadvantage sort of. A social scenario which often replicates their problems. So there's often very complex psychological issues. Um, treating pain in the setting of opioid tolerance is certainly challenging and, and, and requires use of adjuvants um, such as anti-inflammatories and ketamine um, as well as accepting that they're going to need an increased dose of opioid. The third issue uh, is preventing opioid withdrawal. And um, this is really, I think, the only role for the use of opioid infusions in the awake patient. Um, so the use of parenteral opioid infusions um, is really only to prevent opioid withdrawal. Opioid infusions in other settings have been shown to increase sedation and uh, respiratory depression, but um, in the opioid tolerant patient, those things are unlikely to occur and, to and withdrawal is the major issue. The problem there is then trying to understand exactly what their normal dose of opioid is and how to roll that up into a parenteral opioid form. And as I was referring earlier to methadone and its variable half-life, um, methadone is a very difficult drug um, to try and work out the equivalent doses of morphine, for example. Drugs like oxycontin and buprenorphine are more forgiving. Say, for example, I had a patient on 120 milligrams a day of oxycontin. That would mean to me 60 milligrams of a day of IV oxycodone equivalents. Um, that could be rolled up into... Um, two to three milligrams an hour infusion, perhaps two and a half milligrams an hour um, of either morphine or oxycodone, which are more or less of equivalent um, potency when delivered intravenously. So there's the problem of conversion. But the, the, what I would do to manage their pain is firstly understand that it's going to be a challenge and to, to garner as much information as I can about the psychological background of the patient and their coping styles. The next one is to prevent opioid withdrawal and therefore trying to roll up their usual dose of opioid and just give it to them as their infusion, as a baseline requirement and accept that anything additional to that will be their, their acute pain requirements. And then being um, generous with the analgesic over and above that and it might be in the short term that their dose of opioids is doubled um, while they're getting over an acute pain episode, um, as well as uh, you know using every other alternative available to you, um, particularly the use of regional anaesthesia, um, and as a, a second preference to use ketamine infusions. Miles, uh, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a, a fantastic opportunity to explore this ubiquitous topic in healthcare, yet uh, fascinating to find that we know relatively little about it. Yeah, well, hopefully we're, we're out there and improving um, the lot of our patients by uh, understanding what we do know and, uh, and spreading the word. Thanks, Todd. Thanks very much, Miles. Okay, bye. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, why not visit our website? Critique is a leading provider of online critical care education. Multimodal resources such as podcasts, interactive modules, a journal club, an interactive echo module, and much, much more are available. Why not visit us today? www.crit-iq.com.au